right, everyone open up your Bibles to Matthew 22. You okay if I say it? This is a question that Sammy asked a couple weeks ago. Matthew chapter 22. We've been doing a Q&A series for the last uh, almost two months now. And it's been awesome. Uh, for those of you who might have a question in the Bible yourself that you're not sure of, you know, if it's something that you've read and you don't know what the actual meaning of it is, or maybe it's something that's going on in the world and you just want to know, does the Bible have anything to say about what's going on in the world, or maybe this political thing, or this whole thing, go ahead. There's an index card in the back. We have a box back there. Write it down. You can make it anonymous or not. It lets me know if I have any follow-up questions I know who to come to. Drop it in the box, and we'll discuss it in the weeks to come. So tonight the question was, will we recognize all of our family members as our family when we get to heaven? And it's based out of this passage here in Matthew 22. Look with me in verse 23. The same day came to him the Sadducees. Now, to stop here, during this time of Christ's day, there were two major religious sects. One was the Pharisees, and they were kind of like the Bible experts of their day. They were like the fundamentalists. They were the ones who studied the Torah and everything Jewish-wise, and they just knew it front to back. The Sadducees would be on the flip side of the coin. If the Pharisees were a little bit more ultra-conservative, the Sadducees were ultra-liberal. They were the ones who said, as it says here in verse 23, they say that there is no resurrection. In other words, they didn't believe that one day there was going to be a future resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe that at all. And that's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> oh, that's an oldie. That's an oldie. I didn't know if any of you guys heard it before. Anyways, but you think about that. If somebody lived their life as though there's not going to be an eternity... If somebody lived their life as though there's nothing that happens after you die, well, then in that case, let us eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. It just creates this very frivolous and loose lifestyle that the Sadducees were used to. And mark it down. Just like today, there are Pharisees, there are the, the very strict religionists of the Pharisees in churches today, there's also Sadducees in churches today too that do things very, very loose and don't go with what the Bible says. They just make up their own doctrines and teachings. So that's who Christ is coming up against. And they said, verse 24, Master, Moses said, If a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. That's the Old Testament law. The brother takes care of his his uh, deceased brother's wife. Likewise, the second also, and the third unto the seventh. The last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, verse 28, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Now, do you guys see what's happening here? These guys don't believe that there is a resurrection. They don't really want to know the answer. They're just presenting this to try to trip up Jesus, to try to stump him. And look what Jesus says in verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do error, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Verse 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Alright, so very simply put, on your outline here, the biblical evidence to the affirmative, the biblical evidence that suggests, yes, we are going to recognize our family in heaven. First point, 
David, King David himself, said that he would go and see his son who had passed away once he himself died. For those of you who don't know, in 2 Samuel, after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and he murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's actual husband, when uh, Bathsheba conceived and brought forth the son, part of the judgment that was dished down to David was that that son ended up dying very, very early on. And as a side note, that is a key proof text that just goes to show, what is it doesn't matter what happens to babies, if they die, they're in the arms of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because God cares for the precious life of children. David here said that when he dies, he's going to go see his child again one day. He knew it. He was assured of it. Second point, Moses and Elijah were recognized by the apostles, who, by the way, had never met them nor seen them, at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mount, and he pulls off his earth suit and reveals himself to be God, the Shekinah glory, the bright, blinding, shining light. And next to him, he has Moses and Elijah, and the disciples knew who they were. Moses and Elijah had long passed. Well, Moses passed. Elijah never saw death. Interesting. But they both recognized them at the Mount of Transfiguration. Third, the rich man recognized both Lazarus and Abraham in Abraham's bosom, which was heaven in the Old Testament, while he was in hell. That's a very interesting story you should read. And just mark it down. When you go to Luke 16 and read it later on, understand it's not a parable. Parables are always uh, figurative metaphors that Christ spoke in, to, uh, and he always used vague people. He never said specific names. In Luke 16, he mentions Abraham. He mentions Lazarus. He mentions all real people. He's not speaking a parable here. He's talking about what happened to this rich man who went to hell and, and Lazarus who went to Abraham's bosom. But that man, that rich man, he recognized Lazarus, Abraham, he knew it in the afterlife. And lastly, point four, turn over actually to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to do a mild amount of turning in your Bibles tonight. I have a lot of verses up on the slideshow. But if you go to a passage and you're not really quite sure what it is, try looking on with your friend. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at me in verse 13. Paul writing, he says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Now, that's a word that's used for people who have died. Because when you, I don't know if anybody's been to a funeral, but when you look at the body, it looks as though they're asleep. That's a word that just says that they've died. He says, uh, Don't be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. I was just at a funeral yesterday, actually, for a, a buddy of mine, a co-worker of mine. Um, his dad passed away from just stage 4 cancer, and it hit him like that. You never know what a day's going to bring. You are not guaranteed tomorrow, guys. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. You are not guaranteed to wake up Tomorrow morning. Hmm. But you know, at that funeral, and in many funerals of people who don't know Christ, there might be some semblance of happiness because you try to remember the, the memories that you had with that person. But if they didn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, 
there's no hope. And it is sorrowful. But Paul's saying here, hey, for those of your loved ones who have passed on and they have received Christ, don't sorrow as though you don't have any hope. You do have hope. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. What's he talking about here? Well, verse 16, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So there's going to be a resurrection of everybody who's died having trusted Christ as their savior. There is going to be a resurrection one day and boom, they're going to come right out of the grave and go straight into the air. And then verse 17, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Did you see how it says we're going to be caught up together with them? And that word caught up, it means it's literally where we get the word rapture from. One day when this resurrection of the dead happens, all of us who are still alive, who have trusted Christ as Savior, God is going to, boom, snatch us up out of here, just as he did Elijah, by the way, and about six others in Scripture. He's going to rapture us up out of here, and we will forever be with them. And note how he ends this in verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So point four back on your outline. We're told that those who die in Christ will return with Christ to meet together, us and them, in the air at the rapture. And in record timing, that is probably the quickest I have answered a question here. However, this next bullet point that's on your outline here, you guys are going to have to bear with me for a little bit. This next bullet point till about halfway down on the back side of your study sheet, we're going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail. And there's a couple of reasons for this. This bullet point that we're about to approach here, it not only is going to help answer a little bit further this question that we just hit, but it's also going to be a little bit of review for some of you who have been with us going back to when we just studied the book of Romans not too long ago. It'll be a little bit of review for you, but this is also going to help propel us and answer us for question number two later on tonight. So bear with me. I have a lot of verses up here on the slideshow. Bear with me. Follow along. Get your pens ready to write down the blanks. However, how you recognize them may be different than what you're used to after the rapture. So point one, what do I mean by that? We know that God made us in his image as three-part beings. Romans 1.20 says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Now that word Godhead is a word that is used to represent the Trinity. The word Trinity is actually not found in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that or not. But you know what? The word Bible is not found in the Bible. Neither is the word rapture. We just saw it's called caught up. The word Trinity is not in there, but you know what? The Trinity is all over the Bible. Here it's just used as the word Godhead. And he's telling us here that all throughout creation, you realize that everything breaks down in threes? Not only did we cover this in our Romans class, but our How to Study the Bible class, we looked at this. 
that creation speaks. God is speaking through creation and everything that he made, I don't care what it is, it all whittles down into threes. Anybody here love to color? Let me rephrase it. Yes, Andy. Uh, yes, of course Andy does. Let me say this. Does anybody used to love to color when you were a kid? Anybody have the cool 64 box of uh, crayons there? With the sharpener. Yeah, with the sharpener. But hey, what do you guys know about art class? They're all they let me leave. Three primary colors. Three primary colors. Red, blue, and yellow make all of those. Colors break down in the threes. Water, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Anybody else? You, you can think of a couple others that spurred off? Anyways, and when we covered this, we went through a whole long list of everything you see in creation. It all breaks down in the three because God is letting you know he patterned creation after himself. And look how that verse ends. So that they are without excuse. God is speaking all over the place. Yes, he wants you and I, like many of you did this week, to take this book to them to give them the special revelation. But he gave people the general revelation to speak. And he lets us know that we are made in his image as three-part beings. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, And the very God of peace sanctify or set you apart holy. He means complete. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about setting us apart, making us very special and unique. But he uses the word holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. That means complete. Which means, you want to know what makes you and I complete? A spirit, a soul, and a body. That's what makes us complete. You know, 1 John 5, 7 talks about Jesus Christ and how that there's three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And all three of these are one. You know what the best way I've heard explain this is? Was that this? Oh, okay. I thought it was one of those Nerf whistles. Those were cool. There's an egg is a good one. But even better than that, that I've heard, is a football. I was at a funeral. just seems to be the theme of the night. I was at a funeral about five years ago, and it was, again, Mike Blake. Uh, Pastor Mike Blake, his brother, had overdosed. And his, Mike Blake lives out in Illinois, but his brother remains here in uh, uh, Akron. And I remember going to his funeral, and Mike was the preacher of his, of his brother's funeral. And uh, if for those of you who were at camp in 2019 and you've heard Mike preach, well, let me just tell you, you've also heard Mike do a funeral. Because there's no difference. It was his brother's funeral, and he knew that there were going to be other junkies at that funeral. So he let it rip. And he brought this out, and it was deflated. And I wish I had a deflated one to be able to do this with. But you know what's interesting about a football? It has this outer body, this little shell here, made of leather, pigskin rather. You know what's inside of this thing? Air. No. It, a little like, oh my God, it's like, it's black. It's like a little thing that keeps the air in. It's a bladder. You're right, Audie. Yeah. You know what it is? It's a bladder or an inner tube that is the exact same shape and size as this outer body. And if it was deflated, you'd see there'd be no air. But the third part that makes up this football is air. And you know what's interesting? Very similar to how you and I are. We have an outer body. We have a soul. 
More on that in a second. And there's a reason why I said the inner tube looks exactly like this outer shell. And it has air, but you and I aren't born that way. We were made in the image of God, but back on your outline... Oh, I'm jumping ahead here. I got those little three bullet points. Uh, just like we were made in the three-part image of God, do you know God is also three? God has a body. You know who that is? It's the Son, Jesus. says that God was manifest in the flesh in those passages there. You can check them out later. God also has a soul. You know who that is? It's the Father. You can't see Him. You know what's interesting? John 1.18 says, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared Him. No man hath seen God any time. And yet later in the book of John, as Christ is meeting with His disciples, and the last discipleship lesson they'd ever have, He says, verse 7, chapter 14, If ye had known Me, ye should have known My Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Wait a second. Chapter 1 just says that no man has seen the Father at any time. Well, now Jesus is getting somewhere. And you know what? You're probably thinking the same thing that Philip did in verse 8. Philip saith, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And Jesus says, verse 9, Have I been so long with you and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? Note what he says. He that hath seen me hath seen who? And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth where? In me, he doeth the works. You know what's interesting? You guys have never seen the real Corey Howe. Because my soul, you can't see it. But if you've seen me... You've seen the real Corey. My body is just a representation of what's inside. The soul is the exact same shape and size of the body, just like the little inner tube and bladder is within this football. You know how I know that? We don't have the time to look at it, but if you were to go back to that Luke 16 passage about the rich man who died and went to hell, you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a second, his body is in a gravesite somewhere, but yet the rich man who went to hell, he said that he was burning and that he was in agony. And he asked, he looked up, so he has eyes in hell, and he he asked for Abraham or for Lazarus to, to dip his finger in some cool water and to touch his tongue. The rich man had a tongue in hell. But wait a second, his eyes and his tongue are buried in a cemetery somewhere. That passage is letting you know that even though when we shed this body and this carcass, when we take our last breath, we have another body that is going to be carried on into the afterlife. Our soul has a soulish body, just like this outer football has a tube that looks exactly like it. Just like Jesus had the Father in Him, and no man's seen the Father, but if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Does that make sense? You guys get that? So I guess the, the parentheses there under God has a soul, that's why your soul appears as a body, as your blank. You can check out Revelation 20, verse 4 later, and it says that there were souls sitting in heaven. 
How can a soul sit? It must have a body. And last, God has a spirit, and that obviously is? So, you see, there's three-part beings. God created man in His image. We are a three-part being of a body, soul, and a spirit. God is a three-part being. And this is how things were. God created Adam. In His image, He created him like this. Look at Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of who? In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God, He, Him. Three parts. Male and female created He, them. Wait a second. He's talking about Genesis 1 there. But Eve wasn't created yet in Genesis 1. That shows up in chapter 2. Where's, where technically is Eve at this time? Again, he's talking about chapter 5. He's talking about Genesis chapter 1. Where is Eve at this time? In, Adam, in, a rib. in him. Remember, God took a rib from the side of Adam to make Eve. Eve is in Adam. File that away because we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. There's a meaning behind that. Male and female, he created he them. That's why he says both of them there. And blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Yeah, mankind was made in three-part beings. But something happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve chose to sin and rebel and disobey against God in Genesis chapter 2. And God said, the day that you eat that fruit, the day that you eat that grape. Oh. Hmm. I always thought it was an apple. That'd be a good question to put in the box. The Bible's pretty clear it's a grape. One thing's for sure, you can't make it fit that it's an apple anywhere in Scripture, but I can show you a few verses that show you that it was probably a grape. You're a kiwi. <laughs> so something happened in Genesis 3 where they disobeyed and they took that fruit and God said, the day, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Well, wait a second. Adam lived 130 years. So what's going on here? Well, his body didn't die. His soul didn't die. It was, that's why I wanted this to be deflated. It was his spirit that died. It was his spirit that died. The Bible says in Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, and for that, all have sinned. So when they give birth to Seth, guess what? He's a two-part being. He's dead. And it just goes on and on and on for all of mankind to the point where here you are right now in 2023, born as a two-part being. Born into this earth, born into this life, a deflated football. Because of their sin. See, point two, when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost the image of God as their spirit died. Now you want to get this down. From then on, the body and the soul became fused together. It was almost like they were inseparable. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Leviticus doesn't get a whole lot of building. But Leviticus 22.6 says, note how it's worded. The soul which hath touched any such 
shall be unclean until even? How can my soul touch anything? God's letting us know here, and there's a couple other verses that I chose to leave off for the sake of time, but you can trace this all throughout the Bible. God's letting us know that when your soul, especially in the Old Testament economy, if you were to touch an old, a, a dead body with your body, you, you has your fingers, your body, and you touched a dead person, your soul became defiled. Because your body and your soul are fused together. What you did with your body, it had an effect on your soul. And that's what he's talking about here. And as another illustration, and we're also going to go somewhere with this one. Don't do it. Ricky, why does this do this? Do you know? What's that? Or it just freezes mm. up? Yeah. Could be connection. I'm connected. So Genesis 17, while this is loading, Genesis 17, God is making a a covenant with Abraham. And he tells Abraham, hey, bed. Hey, bed. It's supposed to be bud and babe combined. Hey, bed. We're going to do an operation here. Abraham's like, great. What is it? Uh, you're not going to like it. I can tell you that. And he says in Genesis 17, 11, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. In other words, I'm doing something that's going to be a permanent reminder for you to remind, to, to remind you of me and you and our relationship. And the uncircumcised male child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that what? Soul. soul. Your flesh and your soul what you do in the flesh has an effect on your soul, maybe even eternally. That soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. What a weird operation. What a weird covenant. Why on earth would God do something as crazy as that? In our logic, in our mindset. I mean, you know how old he was here? You need to do that, he says, because it's going to be a covenant. It's going to be a sign between you and me. You see, with all these Old Testament stories, guys, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that all of these Old Testament stories were for our learning. They are pictures. They're types and shadows for what God is trying to reveal to us in the New Testament where we live in right now. And he's telling him about this covenant that one day there's going to be another covenant where God would send His own Son to this planet who would want to circumcise the hearts, the hard, stony hearts of His people who for year after year lived in sin and loved their sin like so many people that you go to school with every single day. Who love their sin and love being in their sin. He would come to want to circumcise that, to remove that stony heart and give him a fresh heart. But he came unto his own and his own what? They put Christ on a cross. And you know what? He could have called down a legion of angels to come down and wipe this place out. No, no, no. He was coming to pay the ultimate sacrifice for the sin of mankind, for the sin of the entire world. Because we're a two-part being. We are a deflated football there's no hope for us to do it with our own good works, to do it in our own religious fervor. 
to try to keep the works of the law, to try to maintain goodness. We can't do it. We're flawed. We're two-part. Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 5 and in 1 Peter chapter 1, holiness and perfection. Be ye perfect as I am perfect. Be ye holy as I am holy. Got news for you. He's a three-part being. We're a two-part being. We ain't perfect and holy. But since He is, He lived a sinless, perfect life, never sinned once. So when He went to the cross, He was taking your place. He substituted Himself on the cross for you because He knew no matter how hard you tried, no matter how intentional you were, no matter how good and how desirous you were to try to please Him with your good works, the Bible says in Isaiah that it's nothing but filthy rags. That's why he had to take your place on the cross and allow men to beat him and to whip him and to crucify him, putting nails in each of his hands and one in his feet. And his blood that was shed was shed for you. So that you would have an opportunity, maybe even 2,000 years later, to hear the rantings and ravings of some psycho behind a pulpit right now to tell you that ye must be born again. You're a deflated football, and you need your spirit born again. And that's why Christ came. That's why He died, so that you could be a three-part being again, just like Him. It's by faith. That's why in point three, when we choose by faith to receive Christ as our Savior, trusting in His shed blood as payment for our sins, the Bible says this. Next page. If you're in here tonight and you know that you've never come to the point where you've needed a Savior and you called out to Him saying, Jesus, you took my spot. You knew I was imperfect and I've been trying to just inflate this football. I've been trying to inflate myself and, and puff myself up to be perfect again. And you knew I couldn't do it, but yet you still went to the cross anyways and you died for me. I need you. Please save my soul. If you were to make that decision tonight, here's what the Bible says will happen to you. First bullet point, he regenerates. That means bring back to life. He regenerates our dead spirit and restores us back into the image of God. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. If you're in Thessalonians right now, it's just a few pages to your left. Colossians chapter 3. Look with me in verse 9. He says, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man. What is this new man? Look what he says in the end of verse 10. Which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The moment you enter into a relationship with Christ, the moment you see your need for a Savior and you call out to him to save you, you are restored in that threefold image of God. That's what that passage is saying there. But not only that, you know what else he does? Second bullet point? <laughs> he circumcises and cuts loose our body from our soul. Remember, after the fall of man, the body and the soul were fused together. What the body did affected the soul. You touched a, an unclean person in the Old Testament law, it affected your soul and you better get cleansed because your body and your soul are fused together. 
You're in chapter 3. Look over at chapter 2. Verse 11. You think it's by coincidence God has this crazy kind of operation going on in chapter 17 of Genesis? Look at verse 11. In whom also ye are what? With the circumcision made without hands. You know what? how he did it? It was with an uncorruptible sword of the Spirit. An incorruptible seed. Because this entire covenant here is God letting Abraham know, boy, there's something wrong with your seed. Your seed is jacked up. Your entire lineage and the entire human race is jacked up. We got to do something to change it. You know what your salvation is about? Letting you know that you are jacked up and that God needed to do something to change it. Verse 11, whom ye are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the what? Yeah. And you know what circumcision is? It's an operation. Who hath raised him up from the dead. Verse 13, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So what God did is he took the word of God, and when he brought it to you, and maybe it's even happening right now, in our very midst, man, how great would that be? While we're talking right now about these things, maybe the Spirit of God, as he's stirring inside the heart of somebody who knows they need Christ, Maybe he is severing the body from the soul after you have called out to him, maybe even in the quiet of your own chair, that I need Christ. And he severs that body from the soul. He circumcises it. So now the body is no longer tied with the soul. Your soul is loose. It's free. And his spirit that is now inside of you wraps his arms around your soul. And the Bible says he seals you. You're his so that no matter what happens in this body of yours, no matter what you do in this body, it no longer has eternal consequences on your soul. You're His forever because of the operation that God did here at the moment of salvation. That's why the Old Testament picture is there for this New Testament truth. Philippians 3.3 says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh because it's dead. Third bullet point, what he does, he places himself inside of you and places you in him. Hey, refresh my memory. In Genesis chapter 5, when he's talking about he and she or Adam and Eve that he created them, he's referring back to Genesis 1. Where's Eve in Genesis 1? In Adam. At the moment of salvation for everybody, you're placed in Christ. When you are created anew, when you are a new creature, you are placed in Christ. Galatians 2.20 up here on the board. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me you guys probably can't see Colossians 1 just flip back a page and read that 
to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That happens at the moment you trust Christ for your, as your Savior. We already kind of read it in Colossians 2, so we don't have to go to Romans 6, but I've mentioned before, Romans 6 is where Christ says it's almost like a baptism takes place where He takes you and immerses you in Him, and at the same time, He's taking His Spirit and putting it in you. But we still have this wretched body of flesh that will give us trouble until the day that we die, or the rapture. And that's where this comes full circle. Please do me a favor and check out 1 Corinthians 15 later. We don't have the time to check it out. But he talks, that's the other passage we're talking about the rapture, where he says that this mortal, this flesh, I have to shed it. I have to get rid of it because no, no corruption can see incorruption. No mortal can see immortality. And so at the rapture, when we are caught up and we'll see our loved ones again, the Bible says he's going to give us a new body. Does anybody know where I'm going with this as it pertains to the first question? You will, apparently, apparently from the evidence we saw, recognize your family again. But the manner in which you see them might be different. You know why? You know what that body, that new body you're going to get is going to be like? For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3. And that'll be the second to last place I have you turn tonight. Like unto His glorious body. 1 John chapter 3, it's towards the end of the Bible. If you just go to Revelation, work yourself backwards, you'll see Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John chapter 3. He says in verse 1 of 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the what? Sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, the rapture, we shall be like who? For we shall see who? As He is. <laughs> Just throwing this out there. There's a belief, and I'll be honest, I'll even spoil it for you. I'm not even 100% sure if I buy this. But, based upon these passages of Scripture, we all might be looking exactly alike at the rapture. When we get a body that looks just like His, fashioned like His glorious body, we shall appear like Him, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And after all, going back to the question, to the verse that questioned this all, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the who? Angels. 
For those of you who were here with us on Q&A session one, we talked about angels. And I have some passages there you could check out later. Everywhere in the Bible, angels appear as men. That's, that has nothing to do with chauvinism or sexism or anything. It's just, that's just a fact. When angels show up in the Bible, they show up as men. They're men. That, given what his body is like, it could be that we all have a outer shell that looks just like him because it's been God's plan ever since eternity past to have sons of God who fill out the entire universe and look like him. Now, let's just say that is true. And I'll tell you why it might not be in a second here. Is God all-knowing? Yeah. Does he not see through each and every single one of us to who we really are underneath? Remember I said, your soul looks exactly like you underneath this outer shell. It's you underneath here. You have a body. If we're going to be like him, we're going to do the things that he did. Like, I mean, just study the resurrected Christ in the Gospels or in the book of Acts where he just, boom, appeared into a room. No windows, no doors. He just showed up like that. Speed of light travel. We're going to be able to do that. Isn't that pretty insane? Study some of the other things he did. If we're going to be like him, is it safe to say that if we did have the same body, we're not going to be able just to peer right through that and just see each other how we see each other right now? Possible. But here's the reason why I think it might not be. But then again, we don't know. We'll find out pretty soon, probably tonight. He says, but we are as the angels of God in heaven. The previous verse says, like unto his glorious body. 1 John 3 that we just read says, we shall be like him. We've talked extensively in this class, or specifically how to study the Bible. Like and as are the two most important words of your entire Bible. Because what literary device is that called? Who here loves English? Simile, yeah. You know what a simile is? It's a comparison. It could be that all of these verses we just looked at, he's just comparing it to Christ's body. That maybe we'll still keep the same way that he made us, the same form, the same way we all recognize each other. And maybe we'll just be able to do the things that he did. So you're going to look like you? Maybe. Maybe not. I'm good with that. Probably, probably, hey, in all seriousness now, probably we will all be 33 years old. Yeah. Hmm? That's how old Christ was, and it's believed that's, he's called the second Adam. Actually, in that 1 Corinthians 15 passage, he's called the second Adam. So it's likened that the first Adam was also 33 years when he was created. So if the rapture happens tomorrow, they're going to be older and we're going to be younger. <laughs> yeah! Woo! All right. So, our second question of the night that we are somehow going to fly through just so happens to take place right here in 1 John 3 and just so happens to take up right afterwards. What is being talked about in 1 John 3 verses 4 to 10? All right, so first and foremost, let's give some background on this book. First bullet point, historically and devotionally speaking, all Bible 
passages have three basic applications. There's a historical, this actually happened, what's going on historically. There's a devotional, it's the practical, how does this apply to me today? And then there's the doctrinal, what's the teaching behind this? And usually the teaching has something to do with prophecy. The first bullet point, historically and devotionally, this book is all about the internal and external tests of a true believer and the assurance of eternal life to those who are genuinely saved. We've talked a lot about tonight about what salvation actually is. Maybe for some of you, that was the first time you ever actually heard what the Bible had to say. Not some guy behind a pulpit, not some guy on a podcast, or not some guy on a YouTube channel actually hearing what the Bible says about salvation. This book is all about giving you the assurance that you actually are saved. But subsequently, it also contains the greatest conviction of salvation to lost religious people who profess to be saved. That's what the book's about. Now let's actually look at the verses that were in question here. Verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of law. And ye know that he was manifest to take away our sins. This is Christ, and he was, and in him is no sin, and there's not. Verse 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Yikes. Verse 7, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. Yikes. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For the purpose, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Triple yikes. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth, doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. All right. Who wants to get up here and explain what this passage is about? I could have just very quickly said, hey, we might all be looking like dudes when we get to heaven, but this is where all of that stuff that we just took the time to look at, it's going to play a part here in just a second. You know what's interesting when I read this passage? There are a whole bunch of verses, there are a whole bunch of phrases and words that are used that I don't find anywhere else in the church epistles that Paul writes. Uh, for example, when he talks about uh, transgression of the law, and, and well, he does talk about that in Romans, but when he talks, uh, da, 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 verse 7, he that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. And then again, verse, nine, or verse 10, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. It's righteousness, doing righteousness, doing works, works, works. We've just spent and exhausted a whole lot of time talking about how, according to how we are saved right now, the gospel has absolutely nothing to do with works and doing righteousness. So that tells me that these verses here are for us, but they ain't written to us. For example, I could write Caleb a letter, and it could be like a summary of everything that we're covering in our Sunday night series about, you know, how to be men, how to be godly men in our boys' Bible study and everything like that. I could tell him everything about it, even tell him things about like fatherhood and, and how to be a great husband. I mean, just, you know, that was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> and I could, take that, I could take that letter and give it to Caitlin. And Caitlin can read it 
And she might glean a whole bunch of things out of it. She might be like, wow, you know what? This is actually letting me know, based upon this letter, what to look for in a future husband. This is very, very helpful. But you know what Caitlin's not going to do? She's not going to say, yep, this is how I can be a better man. (laughs) You know why? Because it's not to her. It's to Caleb. But she can definitely benefit from some of the things that are on there. You realize that much of the Bible is like that? Not everything is written to you, but 100% all of the Bible is for you. This just so happens to be a passage that is not written to us as the church. So on your outline, doctrinally speaking, however, these verses, as well as several others, don't line up with anything else that's taught in New Testament doctrine by Paul in his church epistles. Where you do find similarities is quite interesting. Again, he's talking about doing works, doing righteousness. You better not commit sin. If you are righteous, you better not sin. You better not commit sin. I think about Matthew 24, a chapter and a book that should buzz and tickle your ears. Well, not tickle your ears. That's actually, according to 2 Timothy 3, that's not good. It should be a buzz chapter that perks up your ears. There we go. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Was that in any of the passages that we looked at about what true New Testament salvation is? No. Do you see Paul say anything about that in his letters to the church, the time in which you and I live, that we need to endure and not commit sin till the end? No. But you do see it here. And then he says in verse 16, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Who lives in Judea? Jews. Verse 21, for then shall be great, what? Ah, and you know, as you study the rest of Matthew 24 out, Matthew 24 is talking about things that happen after the rapture in a time that is known as the tribulation period. And I'll go on. Hebrews 3, 6 and verse 21 says, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if, if, We hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Again, you don't find anywhere in Romans, 1st or 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st or 2nd Thessalonians, 1st or 2nd Timothy, or Titus, or Philemon. You don't find anywhere Paul saying, hey, you're saved if you do this. No, because salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. It's in the finished shed blood of the cross and your faith in that plus nothing minus nothing. That's salvation. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You don't have to endure to the end. Verse 14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. I'll continue further. Revelation 12, 17 and 14, 12 says, during the tribulation, by the way, and the dragon, the Antichrist, was wroth with the woman, Israel, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Something about that seed going all the way back to Genesis which keep the commandments of God, doeth righteousness, commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. 14.12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Again, do you see anywhere where you as a Christian are called to keep the commandments of God in order to be saved? No. Galatians, you and I were joking about it today. Galatians says that the law is our schoolmaster. 
It's to bring us to Christ. It's to get us to see we can't keep the Ten Commandments. We can't be good enough to get to heaven. It's only through Christ. So this obviously is talking about a different people group and a different time frame. So he's not talking to you. This is talking about a day and an age where that's salvation during the tribulation. So let's bring it closer to home. Those kids that you see in your hallway, your peers, every single day of your lives in the hallway, some of which you can't stand, some of which might make fun of you, if they know not Christ, and if the rapture happens tomorrow, that's their only hope of salvation. They must keep the commandments and the faith of Jesus. They must endure to the end. They can't commit sin. Can you imagine? Just think about, think about the struggles that you've had today. Just today. In your thoughts. <sighs> Many are called, but few chosen. That's a tribulation context passage, by the way. It's going to be hard. It's going to be like a camel going through the needle of an eye, of an, or the eye of a needle. I think I did that before, didn't I? It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. That's how hard it's going to be for people to get saved in the tribulation period. Are you saved? You better get saved if you're not. Because this is going to be some harsh times for you if you're not trusting Christ as your Savior. So real quick, breaking down the text for the church age and tribulation saints, this has to go quick. Verse 5. He says that Christ was manifest, take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. Verse 5 on your outline. In Him is no save, there is no sin. Christian, remind me of your position again. At the moment of salvation, you were placed where? In Him. And in Him is no sin. So when God looks down from heaven, He does not see the sins that you commit in your body because you're in Him. It, from His viewpoint, you commit no sin. In the tribulation, however, it will be possible for believers to fall away as they are not permanently in Christ like you and I. Check out those passages in Hebrews later. Look at verse 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him. This is or, or referencing verse 4, where he's talking about sin is the transgression of the law. Uh, Christian, remind me again of the position of the law now that you're in him. That's your blank on the top page. You know what it is? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. When you got saved, you're free from the law. You're free to, do, for, to not do the law. You're free. You're not under bondage to try to keep all Ten Commandments like they will be. Galatians 2.16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Again, if you're in here today and you're trusting your good works to get you to heaven, please, please see this verse. If I need to beg you, I will. Please see this verse. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by what? 
faith of Christ and what He did on the cross. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not, not, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. During the tribulation, however, you must maintain works of the law and faith until the end. Those are all the verses we just looked at. All right, verses 7 to 8. If you're saved... You'll do right. He says, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteousness. Well, how does that apply to me today? Simply put, if you're saved, you're going to do what's right. You'll want to do what's right. Because you have Christ's righteousness on you. That's why he came in verse 8. But in the tribulation, if you choose to take the mark of the beast or commit sin rather than good works, you will be of the Antichrist. He that committeth sin is of the devil, verse 8, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Verses 9 and 10. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Follow along. We're going to check out these passages here. We are born again when we receive the incorruptible seed of of God's word. 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the what? I had mentioned it. It's somebody bringing this book to you and preaching what it says. You have a beautiful, blessed opportunity to do that first thing tomorrow. Well, not you guys that are on spring break, but the rest of you, you can do that tomorrow. There's only two days left of this week. There's only two months left for those of you that are seniors, less than two months for you to do that. Reminded you guys of that this morning. Time is short. And that's if you're guaranteed it tomorrow. Preach this book. It's incorruptible seed. That is how people are born again. That which is born again is your dead spirit. Again, he inflates your football. That is, you, that is brought back to life by God's spirit. Last passage. Turn to John chapter 3. And we'll be done. Very familiar passage. Maybe you didn't think about it like this. Fascinating to me how these two questions that I stared at them and studied them for like the last couple weeks and never did I think, hey, these should be paired together because these two questions will surely go together. Crazy how God does that. Look at verse 3. Talking to Nicodemus, Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Your spirit's dead. You need it revived. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to them, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water, that's the first birth, and of the spirit, of the who? He cannot enter in the kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Remember what he said in 1 John? You need to be born of him, you need to be born of incorruptible seed. That's the spirit. That which is born of the flesh, verse 7. Marvel not that I said to thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the who? Spirit. Back on your outline. You now have a sinless, perfect human living in you. That's why... Verse 9 says, you must be born. I should have kept my place there. 
you must be, or, or uh, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Hmm. Check out the First Corinthians passage later. Again, I'd mention that a changed life will tell the difference between children of God and children of the devil, both now and in the tribulation. That's why he says, verse 10, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doth not righteousness, is not of God, neither is he that loveth not his brother. Both in this life and in the tribulation to come, you're going to be able to tell who are the Christians and who are not. You will be able to tell that. Alright, so next week, how to answer tough questions on your own. And there's going to be more to that. I'll explain it when I actually am able to put the full question on there. And the second question, if we can't sin after we get to heaven, how did Lucifer sin in the first place? Ooh. Two weeks we have the unified prayer meeting, but further out we're going to talk about Pangea, pyramids, and UFOs. Buckle up. Look, before we go, and I know it's only six after. Let's round down to five. Yeah. It's only five after. Let's round down. I know the hour is somewhat late. But we talked about literally probably what is probably the clearest that I've been able to do in a long time of what salvation is. Maybe you came in here and you had a completely other different concept of what it meant to go to heaven from what you were probably brought up in your home, brought up in your church, uh, just grew up believing. I didn't grow up in church or in a Christian home, and I just thought innately that if I'm good, God will accept my good works when I get to heaven. The problem is not that. The problem is we're a two-part being and we're not holy and perfect. When we receive the perfect offering of the perfect God-man, the Bible says that when He puts Himself in us and He revives our dead spirit, we are made perfect. That's why He says you cannot sin. Because from God's perspective, you are sinless. Even though we still mess up daily, He doesn't see it that way because we've trusted Him. Perfection is what's required to enter heaven. Holiness is what is required to enter heaven. It's Matthew 5, 1 Peter 1. We have a perfect sin bearer, Jesus Christ, who came to this planet and died a brutal, horrific death so that you might be saved. So just a moment, we're going to pray. And if you've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've never called upon Him to save you, realizing your need for a Savior, otherwise you might be finding yourself in a position where you must keep all of the commandments, all of the Ten Commandments, all of the law of God. And this is a pretty big book about the law of God. And have the faith of Christ. God is offering you a chance right now to be born again. So when we pray in just a minute, do business with God. Let's bow our heads. It can be just a, a simple prayer of faith. Nothing fancy. And it's not the prayer that saves you. It's your heart. Does your heart see your need for a Savior? Does your heart see that you are a sinner? And Christ, even in the midst of your sinfulness, He died for you. He shed His blood to pay the price of your sins. If you see that, you can just simply call upon Him to save you. Is there anybody in here that they realize that they need a Savior and they'd be willing to just raise their hand and say, yes, I want to pray to receive Christ right now? Anyone at all?
Now, if there's anybody that, that they wanted to raise their hand, but they didn't, you could still pray from the quiet of your seat. But I'm going to challenge you. Please tell somebody if you do. Again, a simple prayer of faith is just saying, God, I am a sinner and I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross as payment for my sins and I call upon you to save me. It's a simple prayer of faith like that. And Lord, I do pray that that would be happening right now. I pray that there would be operations going on all throughout this room right now as you are severing the heart of flesh and severing the body of flesh, the body of this sin from the soul and reviving spirits right now that they may be three-part beings. Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the word by which we get to know him. And we pray that you would bless each and every single one of these students. And thank you for the preaching of your word that changed my life. And I hope and pray that your spirit would be still doing that with tonight's message um, because of you and because of this book. In Jesus' name, amen.